So welcome back to the show, Bim. Has March been a particularly difficult month for you with all that is happening on the global stage right now? Well, look, it's been a much more difficult month for lots of other people, frankly. Um, so, you know, I can't complain. We do have to start with what is going on in Ukraine. Um, do you feel happy? Do you feel almost proud of the response from the government? Do you think it has been robust enough in supporting Ukraine's effort in defending itself? Well, the first thing to say is that you can always do more because ultimately we are not sending British troops or British materiel, i.e. fighting gear, um, you know, planes or tanks or anything. We're not, we're not sending those. Now, I strongly support not sending them. Uh, but there'll be those that say, well, we could have done more. And I understand that. And, um, but I think within the bounds of what we've set ourselves, which I think is a, which I think is a sensible bound of, we are not going to go into direct conflict with Russia. I think we've done all we can. It's important on the economic sanctions that we target them correctly uh, and that we don't just say anybody who happens to have a Russian name is now suspect. Uh, but... It is also true that we have to target them to try and hurt Putin, not hurt ordinary Russians more than we have to. And I think that we've done that right. We have to work with our allies. There's no point in the UK doing something if nobody in Europe or America is doing the same thing. It's completely irrelevant. So I think that overall we're doing the right things. And on energy, we're trying to diversify out of Russian um, energy, which is only 3 to 4% of our energy mix in the first place. Um, and could you explain quickly as well, a lot of people are discussing no-fly zones and, and calling for these to be brought in. Could you, you know, open out the situation why that probably isn't the safest thing to do? Well, Ben Wallace, who's the Defence Secretary, I count as a friend, and actually on Saturday I saw him and have a chat with him about this and much of other things. And the point that he made about no-fly zones is that First of all, it's not that effective because a no-fly zone to, to actually put it in place would require us to go and take out Russian installations on the ground. In addition, Russia's strength is not through the air. They've actually been doing this on the ground mostly. So we're not really sure how militarily effective it is. But even if we were to do it anyway, you, that, is, uh, that is direct confrontation with Russia that could lead to World War III. And I don't, I don't want to mince my words on that. I do not think that's a sensible choice for us to take, and that's why we haven't done it. And by the way, the whole of NATO has come to that view. So let's move it to the British response in terms of refugees. And, and this is something that has come under some criticism, especially uh, in regards to the Ukraine refugee settlement scheme, the, the kind of mixed information there was uh, a refugee kind of centre set up in Calais, then there wasn't. And it, it's kind of an ever-changing situation. There seems to be more plans in place now. But do you think that the government was a bit more concerned about keeping commitments to voters rather than being pragmatic to an ever-changing world event? No, I think that there were, to be very honest, there were a lot of administrative problems in the Home Office. Um, you know, not every politician says that sort of thing, but I will. Uh, you know, that was frankly not good enough at an administrative level. I think we've got a handle on it now. Michael Gove's scheme, uh, the settlement scheme, so that people can register 
and open their homes up is up and running. I know several people who have registered for it within the constituency, and I'm, you know, there'll be lots of others who haven't told me uh, who've also done it. Uh, and so I think we've got a handle on it now. Um, I think the, the key point on this is to make sure that though we have to be very generous to refugees and offer them safe harbour, first of all, we recognise that most people leaving Ukraine want to stay very nearby the Ukraine. They don't want to live in England or France or Germany or Italy. They want to live in the Ukraine. They, they just temporarily have to leave, and that's why they're in Poland or, or Turkey or certain other countries that are a bit nearer. Um, but secondly, it's to make sure that the scheme is not abused by those who are coming to cause trouble. So, you know, you have to bear those things in mind. And it's, you know, and I know it's it's not um, what everyone says. And some people say just just put all caution to the wind. Uh, and we've got to be very flexible. And yes, we, we've got to open our doors completely to refugees. But we do also have to make sure that there are some rules and some safeguards as well. And I think we've got that balance right, but none of that is to excuse the administrative difficulties at the beginning of this crisis. And on that issue as well, some people have said, why hasn't this generosity, these schemes been extended to, to people like in Afghanistan, Syria or, or other kind of terrible conflicts or victims of uh, whether it be, you know, a natural disaster around the world? What, what do you say about that, Bim? Um, well, you can't do it every just because you shouldn't just because you don't do it everywhere doesn't mean you shouldn't do it ever anywhere, right? Because if if people really take that to its logical conclusion, at any given point anywhere in the world there are conflicts. Is is what people want us to have a complete open door to all refugees from all conflicts everywhere in the world? I don't think so. Uh, in my view, this is Europe. It's our continent, and I think part of being good Europeans and part of helping manage this crisis, because we're at the forefront of it, is, at least within Europe, and I'm not now putting a barrier at Europe, I'm just saying that I think it was quite clear to people that this was not the same as, say, for example, something happening in thousands and thousands of miles away. Uh, because it's Europe, I think that there was a there was a sense that we had a greater responsibility, and I think that that is fair enough. On the issue of responsibility, though, some people may argue that in terms of maybe Middle Eastern refugees, the likes from Iraq or Afghanistan, that the duty of care was from British actions, you know, from bombing or or even the most recent one with the Afghanistan, the pulling out of troops from there. Can you see that there's some logical argument for that? Or, or do you again share the sentiments that this was a European country being attacked and not extending that to, to Middle Eastern refugees? Yeah, I can see the argument. I've just explained that I think you have to draw a line somewhere. And I think we've drawn, drawn the line at a reasonably appropriate point. But, you know, of course, there's an argument for all of these things. <laughs> Previously on Radio Verulam, but you, you've discussed this in other places as well, we actually talked about, um, you know, you wanting, along with the, the whole of the Conservative Party, the government, to, to overhaul rules on voter IDs and, and bringing mm -hmm. about your explanations of fairness in the, the democratic methods in the UK. But with escalations in the Ukrainian crisis, there has been previous reports about possible Russian interference in UK democracy. Uh, there was the very famous Russia report from the Intelligence and Security Committee. Um, yeah. Does that now need to be revisited? No. 
Um, I think that, you know, you can't stop, to a large degree, you can't stop um, rogue states from behaving badly. And, but that doesn't mean that we now have to overhaul everything how we operate because of that. We've, you know, we've dealt with that as best we can and we'll continue to, but it's always going to be a struggle. But your concern was uh, about people, you know, at home kind of cheating the system. And if there is Russian involvement, which the, the committee came to the conclusion that um, it it is important to establish whether a hostile state took deliberate action. However, it would not have been possible to do so because there was no attempt by the government or intelligence services to investigate. Um, it, it just seems like if there is a worry about voter influence or, or voter IDs, surely that should be shared with it undue influence from outside actors as well. Yeah, but they're sort of it's sort of apples and oranges, right? What you're talking about with ideas is is people turning up and pretending they're their brother and then turning up a few hours later in the day and, and then voting for themselves, for example. Um, Russian interference is that completely different ballgame, and I just don't think they're the same thing. Okay, let's move to discussion points from Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. She said that the Russian invasion of Ukraine shows that the era of complacency is over. She's called for more defence spending and an end to dependence on hostile and authoritarian states. But on this point, uh, if there has been complacency, if this is true, then is this an indictment of what the Conservatives have done over the last 11 years? No, because when the facts change and when the situation changes, you change your mind and you change how you operate. Uh, China, for example, I think people, I think it's fair to say China was in a different place seven or eight years ago uh, in terms of its leadership, in terms of how it wanted to interact with the West. It's in a different place now. We've got to adapt to that. It doesn't mean we were wrong then. It means that they were behaving in a certain way then and now they're behaving in a different way. So, you know, it's very easy for people to... To, to, to say on the one hand, oh, we want politicians to, to look at the evidence, think about what's going on, examine, be pragmatic, blah, all the rest of it. And on the other hand, they say, well, you've changed your mind. What, what were you doing you know, a few years ago when you said this or you said that? You, know, you can't have it both ways, right? So it's my view, and anybody who knows me or has dealt with me will, will know this, that you've got to be quite practical and pragmatic. Uh, particularly in foreign policy, because the world is not a simple one. And there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of compromises, often, frankly, very ugly compromises that need to be made. In this situation, then, would you say that you feel that over the last 11 years, the right decisions have been made and maybe people are looking too much with the power of hindsight? You know, it's easy to say now when we see how the events have unfolded to kind of criticise what was done in the context of the time with the information at that moment. Of course. I mean, the one thing I would say is I think that we needed to, we shouldn't have... um, downgraded defence spending as much as we did. In my view, that was a mistake. I think that, um, I understand why the Cameron Osborne government did that, but I really think that defence is absolutely critical and we're going to need more defence spending 
In my view, we should be going up to 3% GDP and defense spending. We need more boots on the ground. We need more capability. Uh, and, uh, it, it, you know, for me, that is the one area where I think that we could maybe have, have done a bit more earlier. Other people have brought in questions, you know, uh, going back to Liz Truss's comments there about ending dependence on hostile and authoritarian states. But some people have brought into question about Britain and Saudi Arabia's close ties, the, the dealings and the fact that actually Britain sells a lot of weapons to the Saudi Arabian government. Uh, is that something that you think will be reviewed now in the context or is this a, another one of those situations, as you've explained there, that the British government is working with the facts and doing the best that it can at the moment? Um, I don't think we should review that. Saudi Arabia is an ally. And some people may not like that, but I'm afraid they're very important for our security, for the security of British people here in Britain and security and British interests all over the world. Uh, And they're very important for our energy security uh, as well. So, you know, I don't make any apologies for us having a relationship with Saudi Arabia. The people that think the only people who you can have allies with in international affairs are ones which are, in inverted commas, nice countries that, you know, do everything wonderfully. Um, I'm afraid you wouldn't have a lot of friends in a lot of places in the world. And I'm afraid British interests require us to deal with lots of different people in different types of society and different types of governments. Where we have an issue with Russia is that Russia is threatening the peace and safety of Europe. That is a different scenario from us having a relationship, a positive relationship with Saudi Arabia. So, look, you know, I think that that's... um, I, I took a, I take a very realist view of foreign policy in this respect. In terms of that, though, you, you talked about the threat to Europe, but some people bring the attention to potential war crimes and the humanitarian crisis that Saudi Arabia's involvement with Yemen has had. Does that come into strategic thinking as well? Um, it does, but ultimately... You you can you can't you you can't uh, do every fight in every part of the world. We have to make a judgment on British interests, and I think that our judgment in the Middle East has been our policy has frankly been pretty consistent for a very long time in the Middle East. It's gone through both sets of governments. You know, our policy is pretty stable and and will continue to be so. And could you also explain, you know, when? these meetings come around when, you know, uh, any of the the ministers or even the prime minister kind of discusses things with Saudi Arabia. There is always the talk that human rights issues, these sorts of abuses are brought up. Uh, What kind of discussions can you explain do happen behind those closed doors? Well, I can tell you where I have been personally on trips to China before COVID, a senior leadership forum, which was led by I've been on two of these, but the first one was led by David Lidington, uh, who was effectively Theresa May's deputy, along with very senior people like Oliver Letwin, who was then in cabinet, and various others. And I was sort of the most junior person on this delegation for about 25 years. Anyway, on that, I, with um, David Lidington, and though David was doing the speaking in this meeting, I didn't say anything, with a man called Wang Kishan, who is on the highest... Um, He's in the, the, um, the Central Committee uh, of the Chinese Communist Party. He's one of 
um, President Xi's longest serving allies. And in a meeting with him, I heard David Livingston, the whole British delegation, bring up the issue of human rights with the Uyghurs, for example. So these issues do get brought up, but they're brought up in a, in a polite context, in a context where um, we are also talking about all sorts of other things. And for what it's worth, the Chinese give as good as they got, because then they started talking about the legacy of colonialism, right? So, so you know, they have their own things that they want to bring up with us, that often we are not as comfortable bringing it, talking about as well. So, so those exchanges do happen, and I've been part of them. Let's bring it on to uh, one big discussion point this month, and it involves former Speaker of the House, John Burko. Um, he has been criticised and he has been punished for uh, bullying and harassment in public life. But the Prime Minister has also come under scrutiny for the comments made about John Burko. Um, a lot of people have said, why weren't these critical comments made and sentiment shared when Home Secretary Priti Patel was also found to have bullied staff? Well, the, the truth is, just because the word bullying is used does not mean you're dealing with the same thing. Um, and the report that came into John Burko is there for everybody to see. It's a parliamentary report. Priti Patel was not accused in any parliamentary process. It was a governmental process of which there was a settlement made with a civil servant. So that's a slightly different thing. And also... Uh, the senior civil servant who Priti Patel was accused of bullying was not, you know, was not uh, directly someone who could be hired or fired by Priti Patel. It's quite a complicated relationship between Secretary of State and civil servants. John Burko's members of staff were members of his staff. It's a different dynamic. So the power dynamic is different. Whereas Sir Philip Ratnam, um, Perm Sec of the Home Office, you know, obviously has to try and get on with his Secretary of State, but he doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't, uh, he, his whole career is not entirely dependent on that in the same way because the civil service has its own independent career structure. So it's quite a different thing, really. But the Cabinet Office inquiry did find evidence that Priti Patel had breached the ministerial code and people do question about accountability then. I mean, when... Does it come into effect that you've broken the ministerial code over something as big as this and that you are asked to leave government or you hand in your resignation? Well, ultimately, the arbiter on the ministerial code is the prime minister, and these things are judgment calls, and the prime minister made that judgment. Um, it's a subjective judgment. It's, it's, it's partly subjective, right? There's an objective element to it which people may look at the fact there's a subjective element to it. And that's what the prime minister decided. So, you know, there's, you know, and the accountability in the democracy comes from people asking me this question and people asking the prime minister that question. That's where the accountability comes from. And people will draw their own conclusions from that. What I would say is I think it's fundamentally different between a very senior civil servant and a politician cabinet minister. You're on completely separate career structures. Cabinet ministers are appointed by the prime minister. The civil servants are appointed by the civil service. It's just a different career structure. It's a different relationship. And that's where I, I don't think they're quite the same thing. 
Let's move it to local issues then, Bim. And it was quite a positive month for you in this sense that locally more than £100,000 has been awarded to Hertfordshire County Council to tackle air quality in the county. How will this spend and will some of it make it to your constituency? I need to now get all the details on where all of it's spent. Quite a lot of it is is um, is being spent in the constituency. And what I've actually done is I've gone out for the details of that. I only know a couple. So hopefully next time we speak, I'll have the details. Excellent. And um, let's move it to uh, another story in the area, a positive one. And across the county, there have been 25 arrests made, more than £25,000, large quantities of Class A drugs, and a firearm was seized by the Hertfordshire Constabulary uh, of Actions Against County Line Gangs. Are you happy to see that these criminals have been brought to justice? Yes, but... If we're honest, that's not that many, right? We want to see way more people uh, and make sure that they do not think that that Harpenden or Hitchin and this sort of area is somewhere where they can come and deal drugs. But at the same time, and again, people don't often say this, you know, there's a supply side and there's a demand side. You know, I'm worried about the sheer demand for these drugs that kids be coming out of places like Hertfordshire, Surrey, Cambridgeshire, Oxfordshire and others. Um, when I speak to parents, they often tell me they're worried about it. And I think that we do need to work a lot harder at making sure that kids are not um, demanding this stuff, because ultimately, if the demand is there, the supply will come. Uh, I'm putting you on the spot here, so I apologise. But do you have any numbers off the top of your head or, or comparatively, how bad do you think the drug problem is in your constituency? I mean, it's, the truth is it's impossible to know. What I do know is that a lot of parents are concerned by it and they're the best judges. So, um, and a lot of teachers will often tell you they're concerned by it as well. And I think part of the problem with dealing with drug problems is is not just the, the criminal end with getting rid of the drugs and the, and the firearms and, and the gangs to do with it, but it's also the victims of drug crime, mm. whether it be users. Do you believe that there is enough services in the area to deal with that side of it and, and maybe reduce the demand, as you've, as you've pointed out? We could probably do more, um, but most of the management of, of, of the victims of drugs, it comes its way in violent crime. Uh, so it plays out in the wider violent crime discussion in fact. A couple of months ago, Pretty Patel came to um, Hertfordshire headquarters to meet with the Hertfordshire MPs to talk about what we were doing around violent crime. And we are putting a lot more investment in. We're getting a lot more officers. It's more of a focus. Uh, but And violent crime actually numbers are down compared to where they were a few years ago. But it is that that, that needs bearing down on. But look, it's a sort of multifaceted problem. And, and crime is a problem in every single country and everything in society for a very good reason, that it's very hard to, to eliminate completely. And what you've just got to do is keep bearing down on it so that these criminals have nowhere to go. Moving it to a positive, you had a talk at the Biz for Biz Sustainability Conference in Harpenden. Was it good to see sustainable business being rolled out on a local level? Because this is something that you've championed many times on here on Radio Verulam, but also in Parliament and as your work as a politician. 
I know because everybody would be bored of me talking about it. So yes, it <laughs> matters. Uh, what was interesting about it was the sheer number of businesses who are not in what you might consider sustainable areas. You know, they do normal stuff who are making such an effort and actually seeing the financial returns from being a sustainable business. And that's what we ultimately need to see, financial returns for people doing the environmentally the right things. Government plays a role in that. Business, but private sector plays a role in that. But if you can make it pay for people, then that is where you will get the biggest uh, positives. If you make sustainability something that costs people money, it's not gonna. It's not gonna happen very easily. And finally, this month, before we move on to the community questions, you've been speaking with young people about the policies that they want to see from government. This is part of your new role uh, as vice chair in the party. What were some of the areas that you discussed? They basically wanted to know um, how we could cut their cost of living you know, how we can cut their taxes, how they can get on. Because when you're young, you don't earn very much money. It doesn't matter what you do. And, you know, a lot of them worry about how much it, they're being taxed. And to be honest, so am I. In addition, a lot of them are concerned that, you know, there is a bit of a, a group think about what you're meant to believe if you are young. And because they have just as many opinions, if not more than, than, than older people, uh, they don't believe they should have to abide by this. And it's about that freedom of expression, not just being respected de jure, you know, in, in the letter, but actually in practice, de facto. People actually engaging with, with ideas that they may not agree with at a young age. I think as a society, we've sort of got out of the habit of that. I think older societies were much better at managing that. And... Um, and I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of the atmosphere around universities uh, is not entirely positive in this regard. Uh, I think there has been a big pushback, so I think there is much more of, an, of, a, of a process of applicating for free speech now. But at the same time, I think we've got to, we've got to keep working at it. Now, I would like to say that you are uh, a fairly young man, but do you feel that your family setup also enables you to have a good connection with the issues of younger people? You've got uh, young sons yourself, but also you have mentioned that you have a, a fairly young sister who you don't agree mm. with on political issues all the time. But oh, she, did uh, I say that? Oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but you have explained that she does bring a different kind of political air to your discussions, which is, is good. She for does, bringing... which can be very, very tiring, actually. Um, <laughs> it's much easier if people just agree with me. Uh, but, uh, yeah, quite. Uh, but, I probably not uh, say anything else or I'll get in trouble. At the same time, though, the fact that you do have these young people in your family, do, do you feel that that gives you an insight, maybe a bit more than other MPs? Um, it does, but, I, but I'm always nervous about saying that you can, you, you only know about something because you experience it. You know, I, I haven't had cancer, but I'd like to think I could represent somebody who did uh, or advocate for them. So, uh, you know, I think it's, 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 in, it's important that we don't go too far down that road. Um, but yes, I think you, there are things that you can just get more easily with experience.
Let's move it to the community questions. Gerald has brought up the fact that there's a planning application has been recently made for 300 homes on the Greenbelt on the edge of Redbourne. He mentions that last year, Boris said that there'd be no more buildings on Greenfield, especially in the southeast. Where do you stand on this, BIM, on protecting Greenbelt in Redbourne? Uh, and Gerald also yeah. says... If, the, if he says this is a matter for the council, then remind him that these inevitably turn political. Just look at what happened in Cheshire and Amersham. Yeah, I mean, the truth is, if, if, Gerard, what, if what he wants is for me to say, this will not happen ever, anywhere, on any green field, well, I can tell him, I can say that, but <laughs> it wouldn't make it true because there are always instances when these things happen. Now, in relation to that particular development, you know, I wish, you know, I cannot tell you how much I wish that I was sort of monarch of all the constituency and nothing would happen without my sign-off or say-so. That would make my life a lot easier. The the problem is we have these people called councillors who are elected to make these decisions and a bit like I'm elected to do other things. I don't allow councillors to come and vote for me in the House of Commons, right? So, you know, this is the problem with democracy. Sometimes you don't necessarily agree with the decision and just because I'm the most senior politician does not mean I'm in control of everything. I think it's just really important that we maintain those that distinction. And yeah, Cheshman Amersham, nightmare, but, you know, what again, what do you do? Do, do you have a blanket ban on absolutely any development in any green field? That isn't practical. Nobody really believes that, right? So let's have a sense of balance. Let's make sure the system works properly. Uh, and, you know, in relation to that development, he should speak to his local councillors um, who will be very aware of it. Victoria Mead, Annie Brewster, these people are very aware of this. And hopefully they will do the, the right thing by the community. Mark has moved the discussion on to schools in the area. He says, Bim, what are you doing to ensure Harpenden schools are serving Harpenden residents and not allowing people to move in to rent and then move to neighbouring communities? He he explains at length about this issue. He feels that the rules aren't fairly applied and we have more traffic than ever due to students not attending their local schools. He believes this is an increasing environmental planning uh, problem. But what are you doing about this, Bim, he asks. Well, the short answer is nothing because it's very hard to deal with this problem. We have pretty robust rules on this and the schools administer those, but I'm very happy for him to email me and suggest things that he thinks we could do to tackle it because the truth is you cannot limit, you you can't impose a rule that says you apply for a school for your kid, your kid gets into the school and you must not leave the area for the entire time your kid is at the school. Why can you not impose that rule? Because things happen to people in their lives. They lose jobs, they move houses. What are you going to do? Say that people can't move house? I mean, I just don't think that's practical. So if you can come up with a way of, of dealing with this, I'm all is. But it's hard. And I think the rules that we have in place are actually quite stringent as they are. Uh, but, you know, as I say, I'm all ears if you think there are ways in which the schools can change their admissions policy. And I'll be right onto the head saying change your admissions policy if he thinks there are ways of doing this. Once again, democracy in action. And as we always say here, I will pass on their information to you, Bim, and hopefully there is a positive outcome in that. Uh, Michael has written quite a scathing 
email here. He says that he's a conservative voter, but he's tired of ever increasing big government of the incumbents. He explains at length that this is larger than any minister, but there is an authoritarian prudishness streak where the concept of personal responsibility goes out the window. Um, his big problem seems to be with the upcoming online harms bills. He explains that parents decide to get their children's uh, devices and give them access to the internet. Internet. These parents also have a decent array of tools to protect kids. His problem is why should all the adult population risk their personal data with companies if they want to see adult content and not suffer because of some parents? Um, and he concludes with saying, I'm pretty certain many teenagers are very savvy with VPNs and this is an unachievable law. Oh, what are your feelings on this online harms bill? Oh, this is very, it's a scathing comment one. there. This is a tricky one um, because we clearly all can agree that children should be protected in ways that adults, you know, you leave it up to them. So I have that dividing line. I'm pretty clear about that. But then you've got to work out how you do that without creating like a huge office of protection <laughs> of people sitting down checking, you know, and it's very difficult. And look, there's going to be a lot of debate about the online health bill. It's going to take a long time for that to go through parliament. I think this is one we'll come back to. Um, but yes, I think it's fair to say this is tricky. And what do you say on the, the comments of big government? Because big this- government, oh, well, look, look I, I'm as uncomfortable with big government as, as he is. The problem, I'm afraid, is that you have COVID, which necessitated big government because of the nature of the crisis. Now, what we're trying to do, and the Chancellor I know is very, very, very keen on this, is to try and move back to a more sensible equilibrium. But that takes time. You can't do that all in one day. And I think that, you know, to some degree, the Conservative Party at the next election will be judged on our ability to move us back to a more sensible equilibrium between the state and individual responsibility. If we get that wrong, then, then, then we'll lose support. So you believe that the Conservatives are still to their core ideals of small government and individual freedom rather than what Michael is kind of expressing there? Of course, that's what we are. But I appreciate that his point is, well, you keep saying this, you've got to deliver it. And I can appreciate that after COVID, it may not feel like that for him or frankly for, for anyone else. So, so yes, I, I, I take the challenge and um, we've got to meet it. John has moved the discussions on to something we've already mentioned a little bit, but I think he wants more details on the Ukrainian refugees. He says, how are they going to be managed? What is the cost per family going to be? And is there an underlying plan for these refugees? Um, he asked, will the opposition's parties hold the government to account for this management as well? But I guess to you, because you are in the government, Will you hold your fellow MPs to account if you don't think the right thing is happening? Um, I can assure you there have been a lot of very, very robust conversations within the Conservative Party about refugees in the last couple of weeks. Let me leave it there. And uh, in terms of costs, and uh, I guess with the living cost crisis that we're going through as well, what is the cost going to be per families? Is it going to be a commitment to keep that as low as possible for people who are worried, uh, like John here? 
The costs um, are difficult to fully price because obviously it depends what you count. For example, if you include a school place, do you include that in costs or not? Right. So th th this is going to be worked through, um, but it's not going to be an easy process. And obviously it also depends on how many refugees may come to a particular area. You know, if you get a bunch, if you get one refugee who comes to the village of Kimpton, that's probably not going to impose costs on anyone other than for the family. And the family's being paid £350 to take that person on and then will manage the rest themselves. But if you get 30 families in Kimpton, 30 refugees in Kimpton, then you're probably looking with or, or with children, then the dynamic of the local school is different. Do you see what I mean? So it's, it's quite hard to come up with just a single cost per refugee. And this is just something we're going to have to work out. But I can guarantee you this is very near top of the issues that Conservative MPs talk about. Is this why you believe that the uh, almost slower approach, if, if I can describe it as that, of the, uh, the government maybe is the, the right method in your eyes? Because a lot of people in Europe, they've, they've opened their doors, but maybe those discussion points of cost and, and what is going to happen with school places and housing has not happened yet. And that's an afterthought. Well, it's a case of, you know, taking time is always better than not. But I appreciate that it's a war crisis situation and therefore things are... Well, that is all that we've got time for today. Thank you very much for your time today, Bim, and thank you for everybody who sent in their messages. Bim will be back again next month for his usual monthly interview, so if you do have impending questions between now and then, you can always email me, jason at radioverilum.com, or you can always DM or message us through our social media feeds. But for now, Bim, I'm going to wish you the best of health, and we will see you again very soon. <laughs>